And that is essentially what zero knowledge proofs allows us to do is to trust each other without seeing each other's private data. Welcome to another exciting episode of Mind Gravity Podcast. I'm your host, Rohan Honda. Today on the show with me, I have Darshan Vadya, a derivatives trader from the UK turned founder of the startup called Xmargin. Xmargin is looking to transform the way derivatives are margined and settled using zero-knowledge technology to disintermediate traditional clearinghouses. Xmargin recently closed their seed round raising capital from renowned venture funds like Polychain Capital, XPTO, and several other angel investors. So without further ado, let's tune in because we have a lot of ground to cover. Darshan, welcome to the Mind Gravity Podcast. Hey, Ron, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for collaborating on this podcast with me. Um, I know you've been working on some really cool stuff on blockchain, zero-knowledge proofs, and the entire digital assets and cryptocurrency space. But before we dive there, I would love to know a bit about you, your background, and where do you come from? Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in the UK. I spent most of my time there in London. And uh, for most of that, have been a trader in traditional finance. So trading derivatives on options, futures on interest rates, commodities. And then, um, and then, basically decided to pivot to a different asset class. And I'd love to pretend that the reason I moved to the asset class was because that was what I saw as the future or whatever. But uh, personally, I moved to applying the same trading philosophies that I had on interest rates to crypto. And um, crypto was an asset class that was volatile and as a result presented opportunity. And uh, you know, since then, I've learned a lot more about the crypto industry and what the benefits of some of some of the areas of it are. But frankly, like the main reason that drew me there was just um, an inefficient market that needed uh, liquidity. And that was something that we'd uh, we'd been doing in traditional finance for a while. So I decided to use the same technologies for that purpose. So um, basically, I've been trading traditional finance for about nine years, uh, started as one of the early market makers on Deribit, just with my own private funds um, and in my private time, essentially set up some algos to quote options on Deribit around 2016, early 2017, and then um, you know, worked with the Deribit guys to essentially um, help them make their portfolio margin methodology so that it's easier for market makers like myself to trade on there then throughout 2017 was just trading on there with my own uh, own funds and as that was going well in 2018 set up a derivatives hedge fund for uh, crypto options so quite a niche area but one that i thought and still think will grow as an area within crypto because um with spot volume comes derivatives volume traditionally speaking and with that futures volume or derivatives volume, options volume is something that comes as a part of that. And um, it's one of those instruments that isn't really usually in the retail eye, but you know, institutional uh, firms within the space tend to use that as a, as a hedging mechanism. And so we essentially set up this 
options desk within crypto as a way to provide liquidity on options exchanges, but also provide like structured products to mining firms or to um, lending firms that need hedging on their on on their exposure and specific option style hedging that perhaps there hasn't been a huge amount of education of uh, up until now. So that was the thesis behind setting up the fund, and then basically came across this problem within cryptocurrencies, which was we couldn't clear and settle trades efficiently um, across multiple counterparties and trading venues. So for example, if I'm trading on Deribit and then hedging some of my exposure on BitMEX, um, I have to put collateral at each of those venues. Um, so not only is that collaterally inefficient, like if I'm long on one and short on the other, I have this credit exposure towards the exchange as well. And then that magnifies itself even more when you're trading with uh, OTC counterparts. So I would, like if we were trading with a large trading firm and we were long with them, we would have to post some collateral with them. And then if we were short with someone else, we'd have to post collateral with them. And then we have that huge amount of credit exposure to this trading firm that we don't know all that much about, probably even less than we knew about the exchanges. So. Um, so this became a problem for us and we started looking for a clearing solution and that's where my interest got peaked because we looked at central clearing but essentially what that requires is like essentially copying the traditional finance model and the traditional finance model depends upon uh, the central clearer needing needing to be trusted uh, a great deal um so we don't really have that in crypto you need a huge amount of standardization because uh central clearers are essentially the central counterparty so if they're going to be the central counterparty you need uh to agree on the methodologies and the asset classes that you're going to trade again we have very little of that in crypto most most ex there are so many asset classes so many methodologies so many different um ways of valuing things that you know, we don't have that standardization and then you need a lot of collateral so to be to be sitting as that central counterpart you need to have huge amount of collateral maybe 25 to 50 maybe more uh, million dollars uh, sitting in your balance sheet which again there's not many people that be willing to do that as a central clearer and then then there's a regulatory the final pain point is you need to be a regulated dco or like a clearing organization to actually provide that service and that in itself makes it hard uh, to first get that regulatory license, but then to have a license that allows you to provide flexible asset cover and all that flexibility that we talked about that we needed. And, um, and it's hard to find someone that fits that subset of companies. So um, all in all, that led me to finding a technological solution for this particular problem. And we came across zero knowledge technology, which I'm sure we'll delve into. So what was the most fascinating piece about the crypto space. I think what fascinated me more about this crypto industry is is the cryptography part and the zero knowledge technology that's come off the cryptography part more than perhaps the database part, which is the blockchain side of things. So yeah, that's basically where I took my career as a result of that. And we decided to set up X margin to, to do this disintermediation of clearing. Um, Got it. Yeah. So, so the process that you described obviously seems pretty complex and you've been in the trenches of it for over several years. So That's if right. I were to just rewind a little bit, so if I were to unwrap it for a layman, so say, imagine I'm an investor, right? 
and I'm putting my capital up on some of these exchanges. What's happening in the back end from the trading perspective? So um, basically a trading firm is providing liquidity or speculating on a, a basket of exchanges generally in cryptocurrencies, which in itself is the first deviation from most traditional finance um, operations. So most traditional finance trading firms trade on a very small set, uh, subset of exchanges at one any moment in time, generally speaking. Obviously, that's not universal, but most trading firms don't have to trade across multiple exchanges. With crypto, because it's so fragmented, most trading firms trade across multiple, tra multiple exchanges. Um, and then the similarity in the situation is that most trading firms that trade bilaterally, so I mean, by that I mean, if trading firm A trades with trading firm B, then we tend to trade with more than one. Uh, so um, like for example, Goldman's will trade with JP Morgan and they'll trade with HSBC and they'll trade with Credit Suisse and they'll trade with whoever. Like, and the, the, the advantage in traditional finance is A, they all trust each other. They all have credit lines with each of them. And um, settlement is on fiat or like traditional currencies, whereby there is some recourse if you send money that you shouldn't have sent or someone owes you money that, you know, there is some legal recourse whereby it's likely you'll be able to get paid back. Um, in crypto, if you imagine the, the world that we were in as a hedge fund, there were these trading firms we'd never heard of all saying, okay, let's trade with each other. And we would have to send them collateral where they would hold that for us. And as, as a way of making sure that we pay them our, uh, what we owe them if we ever lose money to them and vice versa, we would have to take collateral from people that didn't know who we were in case we needed to collect from them at some stage. So, um, so essentially the collateral in this case kind of acts as that, that trust layer that you can pay up in case right. things don't pan out. Yeah, but in essence, there's no way of monitoring, you know, if you're going to get that collateral back, you don't know, you don't have any central person ensuring that, hey, uh, you know, this guy, his position is closed, now you need to return back the collateral. It could just be that the position's closed and now I've just decided to close up, take your money and just run off with it. Like, uh, and there's no, there's no, I guess the rules were just, not quite as um, uh, cemented in crypto because they're just uh, a lot more uh, fluid in terms of the newness of all of these companies. Everyone, all these trading firms are kind of tended to be relatively new trading firms that we, we can trust differing degrees, let's say. Like, you know, um, if I set up a, a random trading firm out of Bermuda versus Galaxy Digital, there's obviously a huge difference in the amount of trust that you would have on each person, but it's still a certain amount of trust with everyone that you have to trade with. The second pain point, I guess, uh, from a trading person's back, uh, back office perspective is I trade on um, Deribit and then I trade on BitMEX. I have to post collateral on each one, right? So there's that credit risk we talked about towards the exchange. But then if I am long on Deribit, like if I buy some futures, for example, and then I sell them on, on BitMEX, then that exposure that I have, there's no way of me telling Deribit, oh, don't worry about 
me posting my full collateral, I have an offset in position on BitMEX. And now you could have a, a firm that sits in between verifying that position, um, but that firm would need to be a regulated central clearer that's telling someone that, hey, these positions exist across each venue. And so you need to give the offset to each other. So like Darabit needs to ask you for less collateral, BitMEC needs to ask you for less collateral because you have these offsetting positions. Now, if you expand that further to like the bilateral trading way, it's the same. Like if I'm trading with JP Morgan and I trade with Goldman's, I can't just tell Goldman's that, oh, don't worry, I have a short with JP Morgan against your long. Um, they'll want to see it. Uh, and they'll want to see that that position's definitely there. Now, you could, right? You could just say, okay, look here, look, here's my position. I'm showing you my position. But then Goldman's now knows my position elsewhere. And, uh, and Goldman's is going to say, oh, so you need to buy it because you're like super short with JP Morgan. Okay, well, my price is now 50% higher. Um, and so generally speaking, trading firms that are trading bilaterally with each other do not want to reveal their position to each other. Like, so if I'm going to Goldman's to go buy something, the last thing I want to do is tell him what my offset in position is, uh, just so that I can get collateral relief. Like, um, it'd be like me playing poker with my cards just face up. Um, it, it, you know, like at the end of the day, it's a zero sum game. So showing Goldman's on my cards isn't going to price. Like it's just going to um, screw me over. So um, in essence, the issue break, breaks down into twofold. One is credit risk and two is um, collateral efficiency, uh, where because I don't want to reveal my hand to everyone I'm trading with, I um, end up having to post collateral with each one. Right. So that takes up more of your collateral on each of those venues. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, okay, so that, that, that makes a ton of sense. So in traditional financial markets, you have a trust layer established between multiple different bodies, but crypto is like the wild, wild west, you know, your gold rush era, and there's not much of that exists because there have been a ton of fraudulent activities that we have seen. And we'll dwell deeper into that. So with X margin, you're trying to become that trust layer, essentially. I guess we're trying to um, circumvent that trust layer. So um, mm -hmm. if, if there was a way... Um, so, so zero knowledge technology is designed to find a way for you to be able to trust me and I to be able to trust you, but without having to actually see each other's um, proof of, uh, so, so like if, if you needed to prove to me that you are actually Rohan and I need to prove to you that I'm actually Darshan, like uh, usually we would show each other identification like i would send you a passport picture which is notarized or whatever it is and there's some proof now in that i have to reveal stuff that's private to me you get to see my passport number you get to see like my date of birth maybe my social security number like these are all private pieces of information that you then get to see and i get to see that about you but now we trust each other that actually you're not an imposter and i'm not an imposter so that is one way to verify who each other are, but zero knowledge proof essentially removes the need for us to be able to see all of that data. Now, if, if you were able to put your passport through a zero knowledge proofs system, basically I would get a cryptographic proof that 
that passport was actually belonging to someone called Rohan. And you would get cryptographic proof that the passport that I submitted was actually to someone called Darshan. But you would never see my passport. I would never see your passport. And that is essentially what zero knowledge proofs allows us to do is to trust each other without seeing each other's private data. Now, if you take that one step further, um, if you have a credit agency right now, credit scores are done using it's uh, using access to all of my financial data, essentially, like all of my transactional data, all my borrowing data, all of that. So there's some trusted firm like Equifax or whoever like that gets my transactional data and it's constantly doing some sort of processing of that to produce a number, uh, which is right. my credit score. Now, the problem with that is now I have to trust Equifax with all of my transactional data, anything that I do. There's this huge entity that has basically complete control of my financial data. And now if you were able to do this in a zero knowledge way, so not just zero knowledge proofs, but zero knowledge analysis, you could theoretically send encrypted data to this zero knowledge calculator. So all of the data is not readable by anyone, but then using this cryptographic calculation, spit out a credit score that is exactly the same as what Equifax would spit out. Um, but we've now done it in a way that my data or my transactional data stayed private to me. So um, basically the aim of zero knowledge technology is to analyze big, big data or any sort of data to produce some sort of output that you would normally need to see the data to produce. But now we can get this aggregate data analytics without seeing that data. And so, that's the real power of zero knowledge technology. So now if you take it back to trading, a clearinghouse is basically mostly seeing my overall position data. It, it sees mm. my, my, the amount of collateral that I have sitting with the clearinghouse and it sees my trades that I have with A, B, C, D, and E. And it, it's, it knows my overall position. And then by knowing my overall position, it calculates, okay, He's long with JP Morgan, short with Goldman's, he's long with someone else, et cetera, et cetera, calculates my overall risk and says, okay, Darshan, your total risk is, you know, uh, $1 million, so post $1 million with me. And instead of posting $1 million with, you know, five different people, I now have to just post $1 million with the clearinghouse. Mm -hmm. But he, he does that by seeing my position overall. And he's trusted to see my position. He's regulated for that very reason is because we trust him to see that position. And so instead of that clearinghouse, now if we put it, put the, my positions into a zero knowledge calculator, so if I'm now able to, just like Equifax, do zero knowledge analytics of my position. So I, I get uh, the zero knowledge calculator gets encrypted positions from Goldman's, encrypted positions from JP, encrypted positions from all of my counterparties. It's able to do that same margining calculation that clearinghouse does but without seeing my data and then we instead of the zero knowledge calculator holding your funds we can send whatever the instructions the clearinghouse would do in an automated way to your own custodian or bank account or wallet so what we've done there is instead of the funds sitting in one central place and instead of the that central place being needed to be trusted with all of my position data and 
to manage my margin across all of those different counterparties. We've basically just made that central person a calculator that is blind, a zero-knowledge calculator that just blindly calculates my overall margin, sends that back to my own uh, bank account or wallet, and my bank account and wallet is pre-programmed with these rules that does exactly what the calculator sends to it. So if in the clearinghouse model, in the old way, um, I had lost a million dollars to JP, but I'd made like a million dollars with Goldman's, generally what would happen is the clearinghouse would net that out for me and then pay from um, Goldman's to JP directly. Now, what we're able to do in a zero-knowledge way is to do the same calculations and send that instruction to um, to the wallet or custodian that's connected to my account. So, um, yeah, essentially it automates and disintermediates a clearinghouse function. So, I don't think I could have explained zero-knowledge proofs uh, any better. So, thank you so much for that. So you found a technology that you thought was really valuable and was ripe for exploitation to be used for areas within the trading business. And you started Xmargin. Tell us a bit more. What is Xmargin? Sure, yeah. So um, putting it simply, Xmargin is a zero-knowledge calculator. And um, that calculator looks at my trading positions and then calculates the most efficient amount of collateral that I would need to place, you know, given my overall position. And then I get to keep that, those funds within my own custody solution. And in essence, I get the portfolio effects of central clearing without a central clearer. So X margin is kind of the byproduct of a need that we had as a hedge fund. Um, we really had this main pain point was that if we had like $5 million of um, you know, balance sheet to use across exchanges, we were really not being able to maximize it because the technology doesn't exist or the clearinghouse doesn't exist within crypto. And so we were kind of selfishly just looking for a solution that, okay, how do we solve this particular pain point? Like um, didn't really plan on making X margin a product or anything. Literally all I was trying to do was trade across five exchanges, but have one pot of collateral and not have to deposit it with all of these exchanges. And then the more people we spoke to, the more people said, yes, this is a huge pain point for us right now. We're probably spending like four or five times as much collateral as we need to relative to the size of our position, because the, the main trading firms that we were in contact with like XBTO or, Akuna or whoever, they all had similar pain points, which is they were trading on one exchange and then they would offset it on another exchange or they would offset it bilaterally and they'd have to post collateral everywhere. And this is just limiting to both the industry, but also the ability of someone to deliver like a decent ROI on the collateral. So um, yeah, it was kind of a, initially a selfish project really, uh, but, uh, but then really, once we found the solution, realized that it has scope to not only solve a problem within cryptocurrency derivatives, but it has a potential to be useful within traditional finance to, to disrupt the way central clearing really works right now in traditional finance by disintermediating the need for that central clearing house um, and instead replacing it with 
a technological solution that that makes things more efficient, more scalable, cheaper. Um, you know, London Clearinghouse is you know, go, puts through, a, I think, over a quadrillion dollars of volume every year. Um, it's massive, uh, and yet, you know, the fees on that if you were to replicate that in crypto because it's such a heavy operational experience a prohibitive to like smaller markets so if you did if you did if you did the same model in some fragmented commodity market for example it would just be too expensive to go through a central clearer there because it just wouldn't be worth the central clearer's time to do it to do it in a cheap way because the volumes are a lot smaller so basically it's not a scalable model or all asset classes. And we believe that this way is. And what would you say to people who don't necessarily trust technology as much? So for example, if something goes wrong between the yep. trades or the risk calculator, it does not function for whatever reason. Um, wh what happens then? Like, what would you do in that scenario? Yeah, no, it's extremely fair. Like, um, so there's a couple of things, right? Like um, with any technology, you can you can have like all the what ifs and uh insurances in place but um really is about proof of concept uh, pushing out a product showing that it works showing that it does what it's supposed to um is really all that will convince people that it works and that's what we're doing right now we're going to be launching with crypto otc derivatives and bilateral derivatives so people can trade any crypto derivative, uh, any bespoke derivative bilaterally, and then we will provide this cross margin and settlement. Um, but on top of that, there are some security concerns, obviously, where people want to know what are we doing to make sure that our outputs are correct or this technology is working correctly. And so firstly, simple stuff, we will have like insurance, ENO insurance that, you know, if if we make a mistake, we'll we'll eventually get some some financial compensation back from our insurance. So if there is some sort of financial knock-on effect of some mistake that's performed by the calculator, then there will be insurance for that. Same as any insurance for any business. But really what we do that is more interesting, I think, um, is that every computation that our calculator produces, we are able to produce a zero-knowledge cryptographic proof that that output was correct. And by that, I mean that it's the equivalent of us providing a cryptographic proof on your passport to say that this passport is belonging to Rohan and it's the same Rohan that you are, right? Like um, that zero knowledge proof of, I don't need to see this particular output, but I know that cryptographically it's proven to be correct. Um, and we're able to produce a proof on each output um, that we that comes from this calculator. So um, essentially you have a cryptographic guarantee in the same way that you have a cryptographic guarantee that your password matches up to uh, to you when you log into your email, for example, that your your password is the one that associated with your email address. And so you can log into this particular server. Similarly provided you're okay with that sort of cryptographic guarantee. We know that each computation coming out of our system comes with that cryptographic proof. So I think what you described is a very novel solution to problem that's been, you know, exists for a very long time. So 
when you have such a powerful solution to problems such as just identification of individuals or documents and so on and so forth, where do you think is the problem with adoption? What's, what's, what's restricting it adoption faster than, you know, the way it is right now? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, do you mean of like X margin or zero knowledge technology in general? Zero knowledge technology. So I think we get, we, we identify, you, you identified a niche, you had a problem, uh, and you identified a solution with zero knowledge analytics, but it seems like this same technology tool could be used in a lot of different areas. What do you think is the disconnect or the friction that exists? Yeah, sure. I, I think it stems from two things. One is existing processes are hard to change, right? Like, um, some of these institutions we're talking about are huge. Like uh, Equifax is huge. Uh, like the entities that are often checking ID are usually governmental. They're large entities that we trust. And sometimes it's not a pain point. Like, um, for example, I don't particularly mind the government having my ID. Uh, that's my personal preference. But there are people out there that really don't want their government having their ID. But generally speaking, and you know, nine out of 10 people are, are pretty comfortable with the government having their government, their data. And um, that's just how it is right now. That may shift over time, but why it's not being adopted in certain processes is because people don't have that pain point right now. And some people feel the same way about credit scoring companies, that they don't care if the credit scoring company has their data because they've not really felt anything bad come off of that particular data sharing. So perhaps it's partly that the companies are big, partly because there's not a huge demand for, for, for those um, pain points to be solved right now. It's um, criticize any project, but it's like if someone said, oh, let's have a decentralized blockchain version of Uber. It's like, yeah, nice, but no one has asked for that, right? Like uh, um, it's potentially something that in the future, if we start worrying about Uber as a company or whatever, and then maybe, but, and some people have talked about it more recently with the likes of Twitter and, you know, their ability to police speech right. and whatever, uh, like maybe decentralized way would solve that. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't, I don't know, but it's about the demand side of things. Do we really want decentralized Airbnb? I don't know. Uh, but right now I would say no. Um, and so going back to the point, like that's partly why I think the other side of it is technological. Um, most of the technology within zero knowledge, um, computations has been difficult to scale. So zero knowledge technology has been around since the late eighties and traditionally it's been extremely slow. So even to do a zero knowledge computation of like two plus two took minutes, if not longer. And, um, and then it's become quicker. There's been advances in both like, uh, encryption methodologies like homomorphic encryption, and uh, then multi-party computation, which has sped that up even faster. So essentially doing that uh, zero-knowledge computation but across multiple nodes and then recombining the output to produce this zero-knowledge output, that speeds things up. But again, it's like you can maybe produce one output every a few seconds or every minute or something like that, which you know, if you're do running this query once on a very small amount of data, that's fine. But if you're doing it constantly on huge amounts of data, which is what we're talking about, then it's not so scalable. So um, we've obviously had this problem with trying to deal with trading data. We need to produce a lot of output 
on lots and lots of very fast input. We have technological limits on what we can do in a really 100% secure way if you want to do it at scale. So if you want to do it in a scalable, fast way, you have to make some security compromises. And we've found somewhere in between where we're comfortable with where we don't trust one server, but we do use hardware-based technology, but we still try and check that those hardware-based technologies are not compromised. So um, using traditional zero-knowledge proofs, which take longer. And so we've been fortunate enough to actually produce uh, like a proprietary solution that is um, something that we've discovered is much, much faster uh, based on existing processes. But that that's kind of irrelevant, really. Generally speaking, in the grand scheme of things, the, the issue has mostly been on this technology scale and speed of computation. And so we, f we believe we found a good solution. Like we're able to produce outputs of you know less than 10 milliseconds per computation, um, probably closer to like three milliseconds per computation, which is more than enough for most operations in the world. But, you know, there may be some operations where you that, that even that's not good enough, you know, like so. Um, so, yeah. And that's fair, right? Because as technology advances, as we move away from this embryonic stage that the technology itself is in, we'll start seeing the scalability start coming to play and these things will be in the back end. But until then, you'll have to have some sort of a hybrid solution that patches up uh, with speed and privacy and everything else in between. So moving away a bit from the technical aspects of this a bit, so you said you moved from UK to the US and you saw a personal problem and you founded a solution for that and you know found it X margin. During the process of building the risk calculator as you describe it, what were some of the bigger challenges building the product itself? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, firstly, I've only ever been a trader and so I've raised funding for a hedge fund before but that's very different to raising money for a business uh, raising money for a trading strategy you can say hey, look this is what I did for 10 years and it made money like very concrete ways and um, you know if you were to if I was to do exactly what I did before this is the return you can expect um, like that that's um, much easier to raise funding for with regards to a business you just have an idea and you have to get people to believe in that idea, buy into you as a CEO and ability to pull together the right team, et cetera, et cetera. So fundraising was something that was new to me and selling people on an idea, which was, was relatively new to me. So I think I found that challenging. Um, finding the right team, I think it's a lot of luck. You know, like uh, I think that that was a, finding the right co-founders, finding the right uh, technology or technology team to go build out the actual product finding the right partners which companies you work with which companies you take investment from all of these things i think was were probably the things i found the hardest up until now but you know, i think a lot of it fell into place with a little bit of luck and trial and error so i mean it's, it's difficult to count how many mistakes I've made since starting the business because you make mistakes every day on like either hiring the wrong person or finding the right wrong contracts or partnering with the wrong exchange or partnering with the wrong custodian. Like there are so many mistakes you make along the way, but it's just about failing fast. And I think um, 
sounds kind of cheesy, but you have to be in the early stages of a business, just very nimble about accepting that actually that mistake was wrong. So in the early stages, perhaps I was more attached to someone that I'd hired or someone that I'd started working with and then was quite slow to say, actually, this person's not the right fit for this for, for me. And nowadays it's become clearer that actually, you know, if it's not working out in the in quite early stages, you can tell and you have to trust that instinct and then move on and quickly adjust and you know, fail quickly with whatever decision you just made. Is there a decision-making matrix that you follow to identify who stays on and who needs to be removed? To be honest, it's, it, it, it's not, I wish it was as structured as that. Like it's, um, it, it, my, it's a lot of gut feel and consensus with the two people that I trust in my, uh, in my inner circle. So like I will, I will consult with my co-founder. We will both have a gut instinct. We'll talk it out and we'll maybe consult with one or two other people and then we'll make a decision. And, but you know, we're lucky in that, you know, there's no bureaucracy there. It just involves picking up the phone and making a decision, but it's, it's not as structured at this stage in terms of having like a pros and cons and some sort of metric. It's just, okay, let's give it four days, see how it goes. Okay. After four days, let's reassess. Did we get to where we wanted to get to in four days? If not, then were there any good reasons? What's our gut saying? And, um, and then we sort of decide whether we want to continue down that path or not. So I think, especially with team and partners, um, we just have to, fail fast at least in this stage because x margin is a company that depends a great deal on the technology and a great deal on the partners that we integrate with and so the technology depends on the people that are building it and the partners of the people that we decide to collaborate with so we have to be we're going to make mistakes and we just have to be adapt quickly whenever we have made those mistakes so um i think so far we've been on the whole better and better about that as we've gone along and um, you know, not being stubborn about those decisions that we made like a few weeks ago or even a few days ago. I, I think you brought bringing a good point. Like you've mentioned in a couple of different occasions is failing fast and uh, failing quick and just learning from it and moving on. So you continue to iterate and reiterate on things that you have done wrong in the past, but make sure it doesn't reappear in the future or as you continue to develop or build your team. Now, when you are trying to um, sell your proof of concept in order to partner with a lot of firms, um, what are some of the challenges that you face? Um, because obviously the space is nascent and the product itself is highly technical in nature. What are some of the issues that you come across um, and that might be useful for people who are working in a similar space, who are more technical, less of a consumer-facing product, if you will? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I'd say the biggest challenge is releasing product is hard. Um, so I think, Someone asked me recently, like, which company are you most impressed by in the space? And FTX is an example of a company that I've followed. And, you know, I, I've, without commenting on their actual product, but one of the things that they do really, really well is just they push out products so fast and they 
iterate quickly. They ask questions on the community and say, hey, what do you like this or do you like this or do you like this? And they poll, like the CEO is out there polling all the time on his Twitter page, asking people, what do they want? And, and then he'll adapt, you know, like whatever they currently list, it'll be different tomorrow. And whatever the current methodologies are, it'll be different tomorrow. Like they'll just keep evolving and they, if they decide, okay, our users want to trade options, okay, they'll have options in the next few weeks. Like it's so fast. And um, I'm just really impressed with, obviously they have a lot of resources and this is not necessarily a model that every every startup can follow from day one. But what I think I've learned from them, at least what I can imbibe right now is that you won't get it right the first time either. So push something out there that you feel comfortable with or 90% comfortable with, and then iterate, you know, listen to your users and iterate. And I think that the inertia, at least that we're feeling within X margin is getting that initial product out there and feeling comfortable with it. It's really difficult. And I think um, that bit's hard. And then um, we as a business, as I said, in, depend on integrations with exchanges, with custodians, with uh, trading firms. And so selling them on that is hard, uh, you know, like because we're basically changing the way it's currently done right now. So we're trying to make it as user friendly as possible. But in that, in doing that, the back end and the pipes are changing significantly for all of these people that I just mentioned. And so for some people, it's improving, right? For custodians and for trading firms, it's better because now they get to keep their funds in custody solutions as opposed to with a counterparty or with an exchange. Um, so for the trading firms and the custodians, this is a win. So it's an easier sell. But then when you go to exchanges, it's like, well, why would I change the way things are right now? I don't, I, I get to keep the collateral, uh, you know, I don't care about that guy's collateral efficiency. So selling them on a, the reliability of the product, but B what it will bring them, you know, like you know, trying to sell them on the fact that, Yes. Okay. It's a little bit of a difference. Like trying to sell someone on a, on a healthy diet, you know, like, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's not convenient for you right now, but it will be better for you in the long term because you'll get more longevity or whatever it is. And so in the case of the exchange, it's, I'll get more volumes, I'll get more trading firms, I'll get, I'll get better liquidity on my platform, all of these things, because, you know, historically over time, exchanges that have allowed this kind of functionality it's worked for them and in traditional finance this is what this is what brought people liquidity is trust and uh, collateral efficiency and so trying to get them to see that um, is challenging because it requires them to change their processes and some of these exchanges are making money hand over fist already so like why do they need to change um, you know trying to tell someone like a billionaire that hey you can make like a like instead of making a billion you can make 1.3 billion it's like yeah well i can continue to make a billion like today so uh maybe some people will want the extra 0.3 billion but some people would be like well i don't want to change anything it's fine um so yeah helping them see that if you don't do this if you don't evolve that billion won't stay a billion it will it will actually go towards zero so like um but doing that in a in a polite way is not necessarily um straightforward so yeah i think those are the biggest challenges i think bd work and production um and, and i think the final thing i'd say is stay focused on what it is that you're trying to produce so 
there are a lot of distractions when you're producing a product. People will ask for things. It's really easy to get distracted by, um, oh, okay, if I just slightly change what I'm trying to do, I can just do this other thing that will make me like a little bit of revenue now. And then while I'll make that revenue, I'll go back to doing whatever I want to do. And um, you have to just be disciplined and stay focused on what it is that you're trying to do. Because the minute you start changing the business to something else, even though that 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 is easier and lower hanging fruit, um, it may be that you then just have lost your moat and lost your business model completely. So it can just dilute your whole business by getting distracted. So um, yeah, just stay focused and then accept. Sometimes you can't control um, delays and you know releasing product and releasing uh, budgeting and like stuff like legal delays legal um you know a lot of the things that we have to do involve getting legal approval getting approval from exchanges and custodians to overview contracts and all of that stuff and there are delays you know like you're just waiting on people to do things and so i think it's you know work hard try and push everything out but at the end of the day there are things that you just can't control and at that point you just have to trust that you've done everything you can and just uh and just wait yeah. Uh, so there's obviously external factors that you cannot control, but keep having that focus about the long-term uh, purpose of what you're trying to build yeah. over short-term gains or changes uh, will help you get there. Uh, it seems like the message coming out and from the business and selling point of view, what you're saying is a lot of times larger companies are just uh, are not open to changing the status quo and i think that goes across many different industries and at some point uh, these giants become obsolete so either you change with times or you run the risk of running becoming obsolete a couple of other questions that i had was more around the team aspect right just building a team uh, especially when you're trying to sell something that's so novel and something that's not been experimented with before, where you're trying to disintermediate something that's existed for eons. Um, how impactful or how important is the role of a team and how do you go about picking the right team members? Yeah, uh, I think the team is <laughs> so important. Like um, there are functions in the team that look, I won't say it, like the, the there are functions of the team that you could say, okay, these this is substitutable across like multiple different people, and you could you could start treating your team members like commodities and say, okay, look, this one's cheaper, so I'm just going to go for this guy instead. Like, um, but really speaking, like the most productive that we most productive periods that we've had is when we found a team that really understands that the the ethos of the company, which is, and by that I include not just what we're trying to build and for what reason, but also just an ethos of how we are with each other, which is, you know, like communicative, friendly, helpful, sort of chipping into each other's um, pool of work. When we've had that environment, we've been able to produce so much more um, than, you know, just having lower cost pods uh, of pe people doing their own work um, and, very efficient within their own roles, but just um, not able to then bring it together uh, across the different functionalities. So I, I've just found that finding the right team has been exponentially better, even if it costs a little bit more to get the right people on board. Um, but 
as I was saying earlier, it's really trial and error. Like you have to bring people in, coach them, give them a few days, see if that's working out, give them a few more days, see if that's working out. And starting to make me really appreciate this whole probation period thing that a lot of companies used to have when I when I was initially joining. They would assess and then once you get through your probation, you would become full-time or whatever it is. And I genuinely think that that's, um, that's hugely important is just failing fast when you've decided that you've made a mistake. Okay, like if this isn't a fit, let's move on. And um, and so we've we've adopted a fairly fail fast methodology with the team. Um, but then it's just about ensuring the team that you like stays happy. And I think, you know, coming from a trading background, team building hasn't really been my focus. You know, like you just click buttons and you make money. And if you make money, you stay. If you don't make money, you leave. Like this is not it's a very you know, individual contributor role, right? So generally, yeah, you don't yeah. like, you don't just hug it out and, you know, like have team <laughs> building exercises and go, you know, do all these like uh, off sites or anything like that. It's just, you know, you, you, you make money or you don't and you stay if you do. Um, and <laughs> with, with, this kind of team, it's not like that. You have to make sure that people are incentivized in terms of um, being happy with a the kind of work that they're doing, but they're also getting enough time with their family and friends, and you know, not pushing them too hard to a point where uh, they no longer enjoy working for you or with you. And um, so, finding that balance is something that I've learned is. Um, is really important to uh, keeping that team once you found it. Uh, yeah. Makes sense. And I think team building and finding the right teammate can reduce so much of the issues, not just from product building, but actually scaling as you continue to bring in more capital um, and, and grow your team size. Uh, talking about capital, you recently raised your seed round with XPTO and Polychain and some other angels. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, now that you have seen your journey come all the way from bare bone products to something now you're trying to create a proof of concept over the past year, year and a half, if you were to go back in time and change something along that journey, what would you change? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was just really unrealistic, I think, when I started out. I had an idea and it's kind of embarrassing to look uh, to look back on my decks and like presentations that I had back then. You know, I presume you you were one of the first people to see my presentations back in the early days. But it was great, Darshan. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It, I think in my head, you know, I came up with the idea in April last year, maybe uh, maybe March, April, twenty nineteen. I thought, well, I'll raise funding by June. And then I'll release the first version of the product by November. And then, you know, I'll have uh, revenue by a April 2020. At the latest, I'll be making like a shit ton of money by the end of 2020. And it's sort of like none of those goals were realistic. It was retarded. And uh, um, I kind of think that the, the, the mistake that I think I made was setting unrealistic timelines on fundraising, setting unrealistic timelines on product um, because I've never had to set timelines on either of those things. Um, you know, being a trader. So 
um, why you tend to just, uh, I'm not, I'm not branding all traders with this brush. It's just the kind of trader that I was, was you say, okay, I need this fixed. You'll call out someone in it and say, okay, fix this thing. And like, you just assume that they just go and sit there and fix it. And that's all they, they do. And, you know, don't fully understand the process behind doing the it part, shall I say in inverted commas, like, and so the, giving someone enough time to produce product is something that I definitely didn't initially do. So I think um, spending a little bit more time and being patient with fundraising is something I would do differently. Um, you know, like I, I got lucky in the team in the teams that ended up funding us. Uh, but you know, the first VC call that I did, I thought it was all or nothing on that call. You know, like if I didn't get this funding, it was it. Uh, you know, it's like it's just not at all how it is. I spoke to tens of VCs, if not in the like over a hundred different investors that I spoke to. And, you know, you're going to speak to a lot and a lot of them are going to say no, or a lot of them will ask for more feedback or like, you know, ask around and you just think that it's all going to happen overnight and it leads to impatience and perhaps um, sends the wrong message. Um, so uh, that, that, and then I think, um, yeah, I think, Hiring people, going back to the previous question about you know, forming the team, I think one of the things that we all do by accident is just surrounding ourselves with people that are similar to us. And I think I've done a lot better since I've hired people that are very different to me. Um, and uh, that's something that I would have done sooner looking back. So we naturally tend to hire people that are similar to us. It's why we have all of the, I've started to maybe appreciate a little bit more of the diversity problems that people have in companies is because you like people that are similar to you. It feels nice. Uh, and so you end up hiring those people that are equally minded or perhaps equal, uh, same, same ideologies and same methods of working. Um, but then you end up making the same mistakes and then magnifying them because you're all making the same sort of mistakes. And so I think hiring a more diverse, not in terms of like quotas or anything, just a diverse team in terms of how you think and your working styles and um, yeah, all of that, it, it, it really would have led to a much faster solving of specific problems. Like, so my previous business partner with the hedge fund was, it used to annoy me, I guess, because he would prioritize things in an order that was not interesting to me. Like I, I would, I would ask him for, um, uh, I, I would ask him for a list of things uh, that I wanted as features on the trading desk when I was running the trading desk. And then he, I would say, no, the, all of these features I really want. And it's in this order. And I would rank it by like, cool to less cool um you know like because i was more interested in cool features that were going to be right. fun to use as a trader <laughs> but he would then come back and say okay how much money is each feature going to really generate like what which ones are going to generate revenue which ones are going to and you know he would prioritize it in the like by the end of it it would be all uncool things at the top and then it would be like uh all my cool things are really, really at the bottom and i'm gonna have to wait months for them and now I miss that, you know, like, uh, you know, I, he, he did not think like me, but that's what you need is someone to be like someone really pragmatic to go, well, you know, that's all great, but let's just focus on these things because this is the things that are going to make revenue for the company and not necessarily just buzzwords that are really interesting and cool to have, you know? So I think 
having people that think slightly different to you, to you is, is immensely important. No, I, I totally agree. And I love the example of the prioritizing uh, <laughs> with the last business partner. Uh, I think we more often than not, we, we do that either consciously or unconsciously. It's just so wired into our way of thinking that we, we think less about what real value add this particular feature or product is going to bring. But just instead we focus on, you know, as to your point, it's cool. And I want it there because <laughs> it's fun to play around with. Yeah. Um, fascinating. Um, Darshan, I had an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed what we talked about. We covered a lot of different ground along technology, around product, team building, and now uh, diversity. Thank you so much for being uh, on the show, Darshan. Last question, where can the listeners reach out to you? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so the best way is probably on Twitter. So if you, um, if you look, look up X margin trading, so it's at X margin trading or one word, or, um, if you reach out to me at, at Darsh Vaidya, spelled D-A-R-S-H-V-A-I-D-Y-A on Telegram, I'm happy to answer any questions. I know that a lot of this was relatively technical. Uh, you know, we do have some blog posts out there that, try and break this down into like a more um, easy to digest way uh, and happy to also answer any questions personally as well. And I'll put all that information in my notes too. Thanks so uh, much. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Well, so that was the CEO and founder of xmargin.io. I really enjoyed this conversation as I'm sure you did as well. There's a ton of great technical knowledge in there sprinkled with a lot of business sense and how to build the right team and the product. As far as this episode is concerned, this is it from me. If you'd like to get in touch, reach out to me via my Twitter handle at Rohanda1588 or message me directly on LinkedIn. I will be back next week. Until then, namaste.